Hello, and welcome to Governance Matters, the show where we examine the work of corporate secretaries, general counsel, and other governance professionals, looking at how they support their companies, boards, and businesses, and the governance landscape in the US and around the world. I'm your host, Corporate Secretary's Editor-at-Large, Ben Maiden. In this episode, we talk to author and corporate governance pioneer Robert Monks, who, among many other things, was the founder and president of ISS. Monk shares his thoughts on executive compensation, including why some boards struggle to keep it in check and how companies should consider the interests of investors and other stakeholders. But first, artificial intelligence inspires both dreams of a brighter future and nightmares ranging from losing one's job to a robot uprising. Lawyers are among the many of us considering the potential upsides and downsides of AI, and for some it's already part of their practice. With that in mind, I spoke to Anthony Davis, off counsel with Clyde & Co, about some of the questions AI raises for lawyers, such as how it might affect the way law firms offer services to corporate clients, how it will change the role of in-house counsel, and how it might raise ethical and liability concerns. Uh, great. So, Anthony, um, to start with, uh, what are some of the ways that AI is already being used by law firms and in-house legal teams? And do you, is there any way to get a sense of how widespread that is? Well, first of all, AI in different forms with specific use cases has been in use for well over a decade. It started, of course, most uh, obviously to people with the e-discovery software. And uh, that involves machine learning and it's and data trolling. And uh, that's now, of course, thoroughly established. That was the first inkling, if not sledgehammer blow, that AI changes the way law is practiced. Because when there were huge discovery uh, or due diligence uh, projects to be done before the software, you put uh, 100 contract lawyers in a warehouse and told them to get on with it. And now you put two very skilled lawyers and two very skilled technicians in a room together and they work up the search criteria and uh, off it goes, and it's done. And of course, it's faster, and it's more accurate, and it's more efficient, and it's cheaper. And since then, there are too many versions of AI uh, that have come into use to number. They range from research tools to contract drafting tools to contract comparison and uh, analysis tools. And those are just some of the ways that it's come into use. Um, and what we do see is that it's uh, all use case uh, related software. It, it's designed for a particular function. But in each instance, what it does in a small way is the same thing. It enables fewer lawyers using the tools effectively to give results faster and probably more accurately. So uh, as you note, there are obviously two intertwining sides of this. There's the the private practice law firms and then there's the in-house corporate legal teams. If we could sort of try and tease those out a little bit to start off with, in terms of the way the law firms operate and offer services to their corporate clients, how is that likely to be affected, do you think? And um, particularly in terms of billing services, I mean, whether you bill by the hour becomes slightly a different proposition, obviously, when you're able to speed up your work, you know, almost indefinitely. I think it's going to have a profound and huge effect. I don't know how quickly, but I think over time, law firms are going to find more and more that everything that used to be done 
by associates in the old style, drafting initial drafts of documents, whether they be transactional litigation, are going to go the way of the dodo. I think more and more technology is going to be used. I think in general, what's going to happen is the same as happened with e-discovery, that we're going to need lawyers skilled in understanding how, what technology you use and how it works. And they're going to give advice based on the initial product. So they're going to amend, enhance and improve the initial product of AI tools, which are going to themselves get better and better. I think the way in the long term it is easiest to visualize this is that the role of lawyers is going to narrow and the future role of lawyers will be to apply judgment and creativity and empathy, emotional intelligence to the questions and projects that clients give them. And that what we might once have disparagingly called the grant work is not going to be there for lawyers. It's going to be done at least in the first stages, by software tools. And that's going to, as I say, require either lawyers with a lot of tech savvy or law firms with really good tech support in a very different way than in the past. People actually understand how to select and how to use and how to enhance the tools most effectively. Presumably that applies both to private practice and in-house counsel um, in, in similar ways. How, how does that then affect for in-house legal teams, their kind of man- the general counsel managing budgets and, and team size. And, you know, if savings to be found, presumably there'll be pressure from somebody in finance wanting to, to see AI get used. I think CFOs at some point along the way are going to say, why do we need all these people? Now, the fact is you may need a similar number of people, but you're going to need different people. But I think the discussion, if we put it politely, between general counsel and CFOs is, are we using our resources as wisely as possible to get the best results that we need from our teams as efficiently as possible? And I think those discussions are going to come. And as I say, like all technologies, some jobs go away, but other jobs get created. And that, I think, is what's going to happen. I think it's what's going to happen in firms. I think it's what happens in-house. And I think, obviously, corporations will move at different speeds depending on what their business is and what they need. But I can't imagine that we're going to wait very long before we see those things happening. In, In terms of billing, I think clients, I think general counsel and their CFOs in house are going to start saying, why are you charging me for three days of work by this associate to create this draft? Why aren't you using the software, which would have done it in 15 minutes? And then the question is, what did you hire the firm to do? To hire an associate to spend three days or to use the software or, more accurately, to give you a result? So now the question is, what's the result? What's the outcome worth? And the whole billing process on both sides is going to have to change. The, the whole attitude towards outside counsel by in-house counsel is, to put it bluntly, what have you done for me lately? What's output that you've given me that gives value? 
And how we're going to get to that place is still a mystery to me. There are very, very, very few firms outside the world of AI that have figured out and have persuaded clients that the client should pay for results and not for the one. I think the computer uh, ability to store and create bills based on time charging, the whole process of leverage, all of which we can thank the accountants for in the 60s and 70s of the last century, no longer work and they're going to work less and less. And how we transition, how the firms transition to profit models that clients are willing to support and how clients can be persuaded to look at value for, of outcome rather than time spent. That's going to be um, an interesting debate. Now, in terms of skills, you talk about a transition to having more tech-savvy lawyers and more legal-savvy tech folks. But looking at it from the lawyer's point of view, what might that mean in terms of on-the-job training for your, you know, your general counsel at a major company you know, over the next few years? And looking further in the future, or perhaps looking further backwards, what does that potentially mean for law schools and how they go about training the next generation of lawyers? It's a fascinating question. I teach a class at Columbia Law School on ethics and business practice. And I asked the students how many of them had any technology training or background uh, at an undergraduate level. And I was actually quite surprised. Nobody put up their hands. Zero, not one. And yet, by the time they get to be at, at a responsible position in law firms, if they're not skilled at evaluating, understanding, using, and applying judgment to software tools, they are going to be useless as lawyers. And some law schools around the world, a lot of schools in Australia, two or three in this country, notably the ones that I know about, Northwestern and Stanford is an obvious one, it goes to Silicon Valley, uh, a, a few in England are actually spending time and resources developing technology components to law degrees. And in my view, it will not be very long before law firms realize that their graduates are a lot more valuable than graduates from the traditional law school curricula. Now, the flip side of that is, and I've heard this said in law firms, we'll do the training. Well, that's okay, but it requires several things. It requires a technology unit, an innovation unit, whatever you call it, with the technology knowledge and, and staff and people to do that training, to do the evaluation of products, to show people how to use them, to help them develop those products. And that in turn goes back to the economic model. What is, an, what is the economic model of a law that can afford to hire and retain and train lawyers on the use of these technologies if they're not billing for time? And, and that, to me, is the great transition. And the firms that make that transition will be here in 20, 30 years. And the firms that will be gone. Now, of course, AI, as well as all the, the exciting potential it has in, in many areas, obviously raises a number of concerns. And I want to go through a couple of those now. Starting off looking at in-house counsel, what are the sort of like guardrails that they should be thinking about at this stage, at least, in terms of limiting potential problems with the use of AI within within the corporation? Are there any sort of well, broad strokes kind of protections that they should be thinking of putting question. in place? Because uh, we have to talk about which, what kind of AI tools 
And so the first question is, are we asking people to manage tools that are well understood and basic and that have been tested and, and validated for many years, like e-discovery tools? Or are we talking about the brand new toys like ChatGPT and its brethren and cousins and the rest of it that people are just starting to play with? The fundamental problem at both levels is that there is no regulator, either of lawyers or of the tech industry, that's doing the work that we might call giving good housekeeping seals of approval. No one's out there to say this product for this use case is better than that product for the same use case. There's no one out there that's actually doing the testing and the validating of the products. And to some degree, it's being done by market. And often that's just because somebody's bigger and more powerful and it's got a better marketing budget. And that's a huge issue for everybody in the profession. What are the tools to use? It's a huge problem. And I don't know where the solution is because uh, that's why I think we're going to need a lot more technology savvy people in the profession to make those judgments. The first question is what tools are we using? One article a few months ago said there are seven questions that should always be asked of legal tech vendors. What do you mean when you say your software uses AI? How much will we have to clean our data for it to work? What amount of data and training do we need to use it? What algorithms and assumptions do you rely on? In other words, is this a black box and we can never see if it's got inherent bias or whatever, or actually test it? What resources will we need to implement it? What tools do we need to interpret the model and visualize it? And are they included when you sell us the product? And has it been validated for its intended purpose? And can you show us how reliable it is? How many lawyers do you think are capable of taking a piece of software and answering those questions? I don't know many. And there's no one in my class who would know how to do that. And so that's my point about needing resources different from the kinds of resources we've had, whether it's in-house or in law firms. But because there's nobody independently doing validation, that's what has to happen with any kind of AI tool. Mm -hmm. So moving on from uh, lawyers' concerns themselves, could AI uh, and AI tools potentially pose problems for directors in terms of oversight, their oversight duties, and potential liabilities? Is that something that they should be concerned about, talking to their general counsel about? I would have thought the director's obligations and oversight is to make sure that their general counsel have the tools and the resources to use AI appropriately, both in terms of efficiency and speed and accuracy, and in terms of uh, minding the guardrails. So do, does the general counsel office, when it gives us advice, do it based on the appropriate use of the appropriate technologies? That, it seems to me, is what the directors are going to want to know. And they're going to be pushed in that direction by the uh, finance firm. So I, I don't think there's a direct, you know, I don't think boards of directors are going to have to be experts in this, but I think they're going to have a general oversight duty in terms of managing the business that the GC is, in fact, using the right tools 
get the best, fastest, cheapest outcomes. Well, we've 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 covered a lot of these sort of ups and potential downs of of AI. But just to to finish us off today, I wondered if you could just uh, maybe tell us what is your maybe greatest uh, hope and greatest concern for the use of AI by in-house in-house teams and, and law firms. Well, I I hope that as I said, jobs are going to change. But I hope what happens is that the job of being a lawyer gets more interesting, that now with all these extra tools, we get challenged more and better to use our judgment and our creativity and our emotional intelligence more and less about creating things that the tools can do. So I I hope that the lawyer's role will become more interesting and more useful and clients will be more respectful of what it is that lawyers add to these software tools. Uh, And I think that's going to be true in-house as well as uh, outside counsel. I think in-house teams are are going to, uh, I hope, get to a stage where that's what they're doing, selecting the right tools and using their judgment and applying the tools to get the company the best result uh, most efficiently and most usefully. We're all going to have to adapt uh, to uh, to this new world. Anthony Davis, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. You're invited to the ESG Integration Forum Summer, hosted by Corporate Secretary and IR Magazine. Join us on the 13th of July at the Clifford Chance offices in New York. Hear from governance professionals, IROs, and chief sustainability officers about ESG trends in the 2023 proxy season and get first-hand advice on navigating the ESG landscape. Note best practices and share advice on how to manage an increasing mix of regulatory pressures and ESG skepticism how to monitor, measure and manage your ESG performance, what the new governance trends look like, how to manage and communicate social capital to a range of stakeholders and more. We also have dedicated roundtable discussions for you to exchange ideas with peers on day-to-day challenges. Don't miss out on this valuable opportunity. Find out about the ESG Integration Forum Summer on CorporateSecretary.com. Nominations for this year's Corporate Governance Awards are now open. You can access the submission form also at the events section on CorporateSecretary.com. The nomination deadline is Friday 21st of July. Set up your profiles and start gathering information for your entries as soon as possible. And get in touch with us if you have any questions. Thanks again to Anthony Davis of Council with Clyde & Co. Next, here's our interview with Robert Monks, founder and president of ISS and a legend in the world of corporate governance. He spoke to Corporate Secretary about his views on executive compensation and the role of the board. So... You had mentioned to me previously that you you have some concerns about executive compensation, some financial services firms. Is there something inherent in the industry that sort of creates those sorts of issues? And from our audience's point of view, what should boards of those companies be doing to make sure that executive compensation is, is reasonable? The corporate form creates the reality and the 
answer is it's a matter of power within the corporate structure. And whether it's a bank or whether it's a corner drugstore, if it's a corporation, the structure is that the CEO has the power to hire the lawyers, the accountants, the rating agencies, and they have over the past 30 years uh, used that power in a very imaginative way. Uh, Some of the most adroit people I've met in my life are CEOs of companies who have ticker tapes in their offices. If you ever go into a CEO's office and you see a ticker tape, there is a man who is thinking about his compensation all the time. And if you go through the sort of uh, mechanics of a corporation, there isn't any occasion on which someone has been allowed to be on a board who isn't approved by the CEO. They just don't do it. It isn't the way a board works. Boards really are, in America, a a ratifying machine. If you are not a ratifier, um, you're asked to leave. The comp committees are safe directors. Nobody gets put on a compensation committee because they have the slightest thing in their record that would suggest that they would affront the person who is responsible for what, by everybody's token, is an unseemly amount of money for not a hell of a lot of work. And um, it's always stacked. And so the question really is, what do you do with it? Well, you be bloody careful that you you take good care of your comp committee people. You don't want them getting out of sorts. But there are very few occasions when, and, and you can't get, you know, comp consultants. Well, stop and think about it. A comp consultant is paid by corporations. And so if you go into a particular situation and you come up with a conclusion that uh, the CEO is being paid too much, and um, the next uh, company that comes along hears about that. And are they going to hire you to be the consultant to their compensation committee? They are not. And so as a practical matter, it's all a question of power. And the, what, the corporate structure confers that power on the CEO. Do you believe that the interest of non-investor stakeholders like employees, customers, communities... Do you think that should be taken into account by the executive comp committee and by the board generally? And is that is that remotely is that feasible? It's very difficult in practice. I must say, as I read over the various weekly and daily mail, a lot of people are trying to work at this. And I think myself that the best way that that will happen is through having a change in the accounting system. And the problem we have now is that the generally accepted accounting principles don't take into account subjective things. They don't take into account so-called externalities. Now, a, a lot of people, including me, have spent a lot of time attempting to quantify, you know, how much does it cost? Put it on the financial statement. And it, 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 shouldn't, it, it should be acceptable to the corporations because their competitors would have the same problem they do. And as long as they, 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 they aren't, you know, rendered at a disadvantage by a suggested change, they'll, they'll, they'll accept, object to everything because they've had a lovely ride of it. But once they understand that this isn't something that is going to penalize them in a competitive way, uh, an amazing amount of them, I'm very impressed with how many people have signed on. Now, signing on and actually doing something are quite another, quite another question. I mean, that takes a, a lot of doing to uh, actually figure out, is this just what do they call it, greenwashing, 
or is it got, is it real? And I'm sorry to say, but it's likely that the latter is the case, is that because, again, it is counter to the momentum of corporate power. And so therefore, unless you have a very determined person with a lot of money who sees this as being a way in which they can have some personal fulfillment, it, it isn't going to work. You, you, you can't just do it with a law and, and by putting people onto boards with particular mandates, because nothing will happen unless you have the individual who was willing to push it and who was willing to tell truth to power, as they say. We've seen, I mean, there is there is some data to suggest that there's been a slight drop off in say on pay votes in at US companies in recent years, primarily in the sense of fewer companies getting 90% plus sign off. What do you sort of attribute that to? And what are some of the steps boards can take to sort of avoid that? I'm guessing engagement is the key part of it. But is, is, there a, is there something more fundamental going on, do you think? Are investors becoming more sceptical? I think that the managements have become more sophisticated and they have ceased just saying, go away, you're a nuisance, which is what I spent 10 or 15 years hearing. And they become that they really do have their own acknowledged compensation consultants mm-hmm. who are telling them, how to avoid this is <laughs> the denouement that you just outlined. So uh, in, in the absence of, of what is a demonstrable atrocity, it's quite difficult to get people interested in that because ultimately it is perfectly clear it isn't going to mean anything. And we, we started with, with nothing. And so we, you know, for a long time, that was a worthwhile thing to pursue because you know, the ratios of uh, starting CEO pay had gone up by a factor of 20. It used to be 20 times earnings of the lowest until now it's about 400. And I'm sure they're not counting at all. You need to have somebody with deep pockets to start with because there has to be credibility. It has to be a, a resolution. There, there are several people for whom I have great affection um, who bring resolutions religiously year after year and who are very well-intended and who... Do well, but they not only don't win, they know they're not going to win. Now, that worked very well for us because we knew it would take a number of years to change the existing patterns. I'm sure you've seen there's um, a number of new regulations just coming to a force this proxy season or, or later on, like pay for performance and some rules on insider trading, that sort of thing. And I just wondered what you thought, the protect without necessarily going into the, the, the weeds on them, but whether you thought SEC regulations in that field can have an effect, I think some people would argue, or some people do argue, that sort of the SEC, the CEO pay ratio disclosures has had very little effect, even though companies were very upset before it happened. Some similarly would say on pay, some observers say that hasn't really had the effect that it was perhaps hoped to. Is it an area that's just too, as you say, beholden to a power dynamic that SEC regulations might struggle to uh, have an impact in that area? I, I think the compensation is something that it is so close to the heart of the existing power structure that in order to change it, you, you have to have a combination of factors that are rare to put together. And one of them is that you have to be able to make a case that 
on its face makes the compensation unreasonable. Now, that's very hard to do. That's very hard to do because Lord knows these chaps who are paying themselves so much money, they also can pay money to protect their position and hire PR people and all the rest. So so it's difficult. So you, you need a situation that's quite unusual. You need, you, you need something that actually leaps out at people for its unreasonableness. Then you have to understand that you're probably not going to win. And the reason why you're not going to win is because every one of these large shareholders of whom I mentioned three or four, has clients. For sure, the big five all have your, the company that you're, whose CEOs pay, you're attacking, is, is a customer of theirs. Now, they can, they, can, they can explain all they want to. That, I mean, it's part of an index fund. It's nothing personal, um, all the rest and all the rest. But it's a practical matter they are going to perform handstands to avoid having to take a position on it. So you you have to be able to get a certain amount of backing. But happily enough, that has happened. I mean, an outsider was elected to the board of Exxon. I mean, that to me was a a pivotal moment. See, I, I, I I view these questions having lived it and, you know, and for you know, most of my life. And, and what I see is the reality of it. And the reality of it is power. And so you can't generalize. Uh, someone like Carl Icahn is, is really quite unusual because um, he actually involves himself. And I found that that was that I could go see CEOs and talk to them and get get them to listen to me. But n- n- not a lot of the, the, um, the people who run fiduciary funds aren't the kind of people who like to go to somebody, some office where they're not welcome and um, sit and, you know, talk to somebody who maybe is a customer of theirs and they, they, <laughs> and, and do something unpopular. Um, what I'm trying to spell for you, perhaps a little too verbosely, is that if you think about it as being a system of power, that usually answers the question. Okay. Thank you. Well, um, just lastly, um, I was going to ask you about, about ESG there are a number of companies or a growing number of companies that say they tie executive comp to some form of ESG metric or metrics and others that don't, uh, varying views on that. How do you view that from a, a governance point of view? Is, is there mileage in that? Is it, is it worthwhile doing? Does that have like a real effect if you are seeking to achieve the goals of, say, ESG, say, climate change, for example? My preferred solution is one I mentioned briefly earlier and that is that those factors be taken into account by the accountants, that the account, accounting system makes a direct charge. So th- this question as to whether, whether, whether it's material or not is answered by the way in which the accountants want to deal with it. And people can say, well, they can't deal with it. This stuff is all cuckoo, you know, and what is it? It's just funny stuff. And you say, how recently have you looked at the balance sheet of a sort of modern um, technological company, you know, where where 95% of of their right-hand side is, you know, sort of uh, some kind of euphemism for we can't, we don't really have bricks and mortar and stuff like that. We got smart people and we've got a few ideas and we got a few patent applications. <laughs> and you say, well, you know, if you're submitting that as an accounting matter, don't tell me that you can't do something about ESG. And we spent a lot of time on that. And I still to this day don't really know what S is. 
G we spent a lot of time on, and, and that's where we basically looked. And I was involved in, in ownership of a couple of companies that were doing um, E. And uh, uh, the best one was one in England called True Cost. And um, I mean, they really had a very, very sensible way of trying to evaluate the impact of all kinds of externalities like smoke that goes up and crap that goes down. And so I, I think it can be done. And I do not have, I'm not current with this. As I read the press, there are all kinds of institutions that have been attacking this question and, and, they're, and they're headed in the right direction. And that to me is such a good idea because if you can make this, you know, part of the, of the operating income, operating expense of the company, you don't necessarily have such a problem as you have with enforcement, because this is a self-answering question. You know what the costs are. Your, your competitors have the same thing. And if you don't comply, well, uh, you, you know, somebody, they sell your stock. Um, if, if you haven't persuaded the accountants, you know, that what they've done is wrong. So I'm hoping that over time, but, but the hell of it is that the accountants are in a desperate situation nowadays. And it's really a shame because they are a critical part of this package and they aren't quite as bad as the people who are, are, are measuring the, the efficacy of different financial pack, accounting packages or what have you, but it's pretty tough. Well, Robert Monks, it's wonderful speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, I enjoyed talking to you, Ben. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Governance Matters podcast with me, Ben Maiden. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to like, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.